Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, I want to encourage you to open your uh, Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one on the ground near you. And uh, while you're doing that, let me just uh, make one more community group uh, plug. Um, this was one of those weeks where uh, the week just got away from me, and before I knew it, it was about noon on Friday, and I realized that I had been planning to uh, send out emails, a series of emails to explain how incredible our community group, you know, this experiment's going to be that we're, and, uh, and people keep asking me, what are we doing, and what's, what, what's going on, and I was going to email and explain it all, but it just didn't happen, so... Um, I'm, I'm really excited about this. This is a, a work in progress, but this is a chance for us to kind of build a culture of um, not just kind of showing up as a church, and, and sometimes church can feel on Sunday morning like a, uh, I don't know, like maybe more of a passive experience. Um, and so our community groups are going to be a way for us to kind of develop a culture of um, of caring for one another and, uh, and talking about the Bible and uh, helping us take uh, some of the ideas that we're talking about in, uh, in the sermon on Sunday into the rest of our week. Uh, it's going to be very much a discussion-oriented kind of a, kind of a thing. So I would encourage you to be there this Thursday as we start. I'd encourage you to go to resoc.life and RSVP so that we will... Uh, I will promise that I'll get at least one email out with directions and location and time and all that kind of stuff, so that'll be helpful for you to see. Um, with that said, let's uh, turn our attention to God's Word. We are, um, so this is really the third week of a series that I've called Mine Eyes, I've Seen the Glory, which is basically just an, an in, uh, this series is just an introduction to what we're doing um, this year as we look at the glory of God and how the glory of God compels us to, to follow him. And uh, so we're going to be spending a lot of the year in, in the book of Revelation. And so I thought it was just important to say this for the sanity of us all that um, it's revelation, okay? <laughs> it's not revelations. And there's just one revelation. I'm, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, tongue but it is actually true. The, it's the book of Revelation. And so with that in mind, let me invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to read uh, Revelation 1, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, on one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Can I pray for us? Let's pray together. Oh God, as we now give our attention to your word, would we, uh, like John, be stunned, uh, truly shocked at who you are? And would we, like John, uh, experience uh, uh, the sensation of you reaching out to us to comfort us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. A thousand years ago, in the year 980 AD, a thousand years before I was born, uh, there was another man named Vladimir in Russia. Uh, Vladimir the Great, he's called, and he was the, uh, he was the prince of Kiev. And around the year 980 AD, he became essentially the, the monarch, the king of, of Russia. And uh, the area had been kind of um, an amalgamation of different people and tribes. And though he had been raised as a pagan, uh, Vladimir, in an attempt to unify these different groups of people as one nation, decided to uh, look for a new religion to unify the people. And so he sent messengers and delegations to a variety of countries um, surrounding Russia and uh, to to investigate their their religions and to explore the world's great faiths. And some of the messengers reported that they had observed religions that were austere and serious. And other uh, delegations came back and they said that they had discovered faiths that seemed intellectually robust, but they seemed abstract and aloof and kind of disconnected from day-to-day life. But there was one group that he had sent to Constantinople. And when they came back from Constantinople, this is what they said. They wrote, Then we went to Constantinople, and they led us to the place where they worshipped their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. For on earth there is no such vision nor beauty. And we were at a loss as to how to describe it. We knew only that God dwells there among people, that their service is lovely, uh, that their service is lovelier than the ceremonies of other nations, for we cannot forget that beauty. It's incredibly uh, striking to think about the reality that the Russian people, at least externally, embraced Christianity, not because they were persuaded by the goodness of Christianity or by the truth of Christianity, but by the beauty, by the aesthetic. Um, they were so caught up in the worship of God that they said they, didn't, they couldn't tell 
course they could tell, right? <laughs> but he said, we couldn't tell if we were in heaven or on earth because it felt like God had drawn near to us. Today, I think that uh, many of us and many people in our culture are longing for some expression of spirituality uh, that will grab a hold of us, that will capture us, that will enthrall us. Uh, We're looking for an expression of spirituality, a form of spirituality that will provide for us what materialism and secularism promise but can't actually deliver on. You know, we live in a time when uh, technology makes our lives easier and more comfortable and more convenient than than they've ever been at any time in history, and yet there is still this deep sense of unrest in our nation, uh, in our world, and in our own lives, isn't there? Um, It kind of reminds me a little bit of the show Mad Men. I know this is a couple years old, but, um, you know, why... What is behind the wildly, wild popularity of that show, Mad Men? It's about this guy who's very good looking and it's very aesthetically pleasing, you know. But he's living in kind of post-World War II America, this time the baby boom where like there's, there's unprecedented prosperity. And yet something is deeply, deeply wrong with the world and with him. And um, I know that that show depicted the 60s, but it enthralled us like a couple of years ago. Um, as somebody said, somebody who's, I probably shouldn't quote this person anymore, but uh, comedian said a couple of years ago, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. And against this landscape, Christians have grown used to defending our faith in terms of the, like the mor- morality. Um, we saw a lot of that on the internet this week. Um, but the, the, the goodness of our faith, uh, we defend the truth of our faith, um, and, and that's good, and that's good. Um, but there's, there's almost this sense that, you know, especially in the way that we interact online, but in person too, where it's like if we can just kind of demonstrate the blinding, obvious truth of Christianity, that it would like force people to acknowledge that it's true. And even when that's all true, I feel like there's often still a little bit of like a yuck factor uh, involved. Or um, we also talk about the about Christianity in terms of its youth, youthfulness. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week who was talking about um, a friend. Some, some friend. She had just mentioned that she was involved in a church, and her uh, friend said, "You know, what do you get out of that?" And uh, we were talking about that, but it struck me that maybe that's not the, the greatest question to even ask. Because even if we ask what, or answer, what do you get out of church, even if we answer that really well, we still run the risk of reducing Jesus to a, uh, a product that we market because of his usefulness. And so I love what, um, you know, is implied at least by Vladimir the Great converting to Christianity because of its beauty. Um, I love the idea that instead of pushing people to Jesus with, uh, with goodness and truth and morality, that the Bible holds out a different way, that beauty can sort of cut through, not that it's irrational, but that it can go beyond what rational argumentation can do for us and actually draw us to God and pull us towards God by alluring us with his goodness or with his beauty. 
Um, there's a sense in which, I, I was thinking about this this week, I love the winters in Southern California because we're running, you know, I'm late on my way home from work, and there's this place right on like Antonio in between um, Crown Valley and Oso Parkway. You've all driven there probably this morning, most many of you. But there's this place where you, you can kind of get a glimpse out towards the coast and, you know, 5 p.m. as the sun's setting, it just looks like the sky is on fire. And for half a second, it makes me forget that I'm running late um, and that I'm stressed because my wife's going to be upset that I'm getting home late and it's just overwhelming how beautiful the world is that we live in. Um, where is the beauty in our world? Where's the beauty in our Christianity? Well, truth and goodness push us to Jesus. The glory and majesty and beauty of the gospel compel us. They pull us towards um, God and who he is. Jesus' life is compelling. His miracles are compelling. His teaching, uh, this contrast between, you know, the Jesus' words that are just stark sometimes. Um, I read something in the Gospels this week where... I can't even remember what it was, but I remember, did Jesus really say that? Jesus is just incredibly demanding, and yet at the same time, he will turn and be so gentle and so humble. Uh, It's stunning. His humility, his birth, his death, his resurrection quietly draw us to him. He is breathtakingly beautiful. At the end of the first century, around 96 AD, um, the first Christians, the first maybe second generation of Christians was experiencing persecution and many were wondering, is it still worth it to follow Jesus in light of what we have to endure? And I think in the 21st century, most Christians in the U.S. don't experience persecution. But I think what we face is the tyranny of boredom and apathy. And that too can cause us to wonder, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And God sent at the end of the first century the book of Revelation. And I believe that the book of Revelation cuts through the chaos and the boredom and the noise of the culture that we live in. And it draws us to God because he is good and he is beautiful and he is glorious. It's fascinating to think that as God's people in the first century were crying out, God, would you show us your presence? Would you be near to us? God, would you save us? God's response is not to send them a plan for how to get the right politicians into office. He doesn't send them more money so that they can produce better you know, marketing campaigns or programs in the church. He doesn't send them any of the things that like we want, that I want <laughs> as a pastor. But instead, he sends a vision of Jesus. And in Revelation, what he's doing is he's pulling back the curtain and he's saying, let me show you what's really going on right now, right here. And we see here that one of the first things that God shows us, when he shows us what's really going on in this book of graphic imagery, he shows us that there is a person standing behind all of human history who is staggering in his beauty. He gives us a picture of who Jesus really is. And so mostly that's what I want you to look at with me this morning. This description of of who Jesus is. Um, You know, how, how do you think of Jesus? Jesus is you know, often portrayed in artwork as timid. We think of Jesus as like a lady with a beard, with great hair products, you know, um, and a dress. 
and a muumuu, and, and not even a great dress, you know. Why does Jesus always wear a muumuu? Um, <laughs> nothing could be more, you know, striking in its contrast as this image of Jesus. Um, his, he has hair that is white like wool. Uh, he, he, his, his eyes blaze like fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, his voice, his, his, his tongue is like a, is like a sword. Um, Jesus is stunningly beautiful. And let me just be clear that when I say that, I don't mean, when I say Jesus is beautiful, I don't mean that he is pretty. Um, you know, there's a place in, later in Revelation where there's another image of Jesus as the rider on a horse, and he has a name tattooed on his thigh. I mean, like, Jesus is not timid. He is stunning. Um, he is incredible. John sees him, uh, John who followed Jesus around every day for three years of his life, and watched Jesus die. And then saw Jesus briefly after his resurrection and saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And John sees this image of Jesus and he doesn't say, oh gosh, my friend, like, I'm so glad to see you. It says John was terrified. John says, I saw Jesus light up like a Christmas tree and it frightened me. I fell down, he says, as dead. Why does Jesus have to pick John up off the ground? Well, look at the way that he's described. Um, John looks... He hears this voice like a trumpet behind him, and he says, I looked, and I saw one like a son of man. That phrase, the son of man, is a, uh, it was Jesus' favorite way to describe himself, but it's a, uh, a lot of this imagery comes from the, the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and Ezekiel in particular. But um, the, the title, son of man, comes from the book of Daniel, and it describes the exalted human being who brings an end to world-dominating empires and ushers in the kingdom of God. The Son of Man is the one who has the authority to judge uh, the kingdoms, to judge the world, and to judge the church. Um, one commentary that I, I looked at this week said that the title Son of Man in the context of the ancient world was the most stunningly audacious thing you could claim for yourself. To claim to be like the be like the claiming to be the purpose of human history. Um, that is either the most insane thing to claim for Jesus, uh, or, or else it's either actually true. He's the son of man. It says in verse 14 that he had hair like wool, like snow. And you can hear John, he's like grasping for words to, to describe what he saw. And um, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where it says there, Daniel said, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Um, this, you know, having white hair—it's—it's it's an image of purity, but it's also—it's uh, an image of, of wisdom because um, of you know what do we say if somebody has white hair? They're they're old, right? And. Um, what it's saying of Jesus is that he is the ancient of days. He, 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 is with, he has wisdom because he's been there from the beginning. He's not, when we think of Jesus, we think, you know, he, he, he was uh, crucified when he was probably 33 years old. Uh, and so as a man, Jesus died at the age of 33, but Jesus isn't 33 years old. Jesus is, is really, really old. He's been there like forever. Um, He's not just old. He's the ancient of days. He has seen it all. 
because he created it all, and so he has perspective. I remember this moment of, um, I think when Ashley was, uh, or when our third child had just been born, and um, being in our kitchen, and the pacifier fell out of his mouth and hit the ground, and we had some friends there, and she was pregnant with their first child. And I remember her picking up the pacifier and saying, do you want me to, like, wash this for you? And I remember thinking, like, if you want to, but... Um, you know, difference between first child, third child, like, we've been through this, you know, it's going to hit the ground a thousand more times, and it's not going to get washed any of those, so if it makes you feel better, feel free, but we've been through this before. Uh, Jesus has been through it all. He has seen it. He has perspective. Uh, He's seen the rise and fall of world empires. He has um, seen his people when they live under uh, persecution and in comfort. He's seen his people when they lose their jobs, when they get new ones. The one who is behind the scenes and in control of human history is not shaken by the ups and downs of our lives because he's been through it. He has the wisdom of age because he's the ancient of days. It says, uh, talks about his voice in verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters and then Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The sound of many waters is an image found throughout Revelation, but it comes from Ezekiel chapter 43, where it says, And behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel, was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Uh, you know, it makes me think of that. You know, why do we, um, why do we um, whisper when we imitate the sound of a stadium full of people? But if you've ever... You've been on a hike and hiked up near a waterfall. There's this sense that it just drowns out the the volume of anything else. You get right up next to a pouring, pouring waterfall. You can't hear the person standing right next to you shouting at you. It's just incredibly loud. But more than that, Jesus' voice uh, isn't just loud, but it's full of authority. His word is like a sword. he, He sees us, he knows us, and he cuts right to the heart. Jesus speaks and it happens. Jesus spoke and the world, the universe came into existence. Jesus spoke and Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb. Jesus spoke and a raging storm was instantly calm. Jesus speaks and the universe responds. And then it says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Um... John's face is, is so warm that he has to look away. It's this image of Jesus as the, the actual glory of God. He is, he is not like the moon that radiates the glory of a, or the light of something else, but he is actually the source of its light. And um, I was thinking about this. It, you know, it's hard, I feel like, to convey exactly what's going on here because we live in a time of, like, technological everything, um, you know... We experience, as a matter of routine, things that 100 to 150 years ago would seem like magic to people. And so we are not really, like, we're very hard to impress. We've seen everything, and we, we make it worse because we misuse words like awesome and epic. We're like, that fish taco, dude, is like epic. <laughs> Like you walked a thousand miles to get to a fish taco. That's the only epic fish taco, right? But I, I don't know what else to say other than to say this description of Jesus is awesome. 
and it's epic in the truest sense of the word. Even unpacking these images almost seems like it defeats the purpose. So let me put it like this. The, um, I think it was the first Avengers movie that came out you know, several years ago. And there's this point towards the end of the movie where the Avengers are battling and uh, Tony Stark, um, uh, Iron Man, right, is, is battling with Loki and they're, they're like talking trash and Loki says, uh, you know, he said, we're going to kill you, uh, we're going to win. And he, Loki says, we have an army. And, you know, Tony Stark says, he says, we have a Hulk. And it's like, trump card, you cannot beat the Hulk. Um, we have a Christ. We have a cosmic Christ who relativizes everything else that stands in his way. I used that illustration a couple years ago when I was a college pastor, and this, um, this guy came up to me afterwards, um, freshman in college, said, so you're saying that Jesus is like the Hulk? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Because I, I actually think that the more I think about it, I think that's a great way to think about the book of Revelation. Because we can read it and be like, what do all these details mean? But it reads more like a comic book where there is uh, this, this startling imagery and there's a very clear sense of right and wrong and who, um, you know, you don't need to get lost in the details of the book of Revelation because the point is clear. Jesus is going to win. The cosmic Christ is the epic figure who stands behind all of human history. He cuts through the noise of our culture and the chaos of our lives. And the only question is this, how big is your Jesus? How big is Jesus in your life? His beauty is compelling. But most of us, I think, spend our, spend, we spend our days like hustling, hustling, hustling so that we can get a little break in the evening and on the weekends. And uh, if we're Christians, we, send, we tend to treat Jesus like he's the icing on the cake, like he's an afterthought. Like there's the real stuff of life, and then I want to rest and have fun, and then like, yeah, a little Jesus on top, like, why not? You know, the, the cosmic Christ cannot fit into this mold of the tiny Jesus. The cosmic Christ holds our entire existence in his hands. Um, our parenting, our working, our marriages, our um, everything, our everything. I was uh, talking with a, um, a guy this week who's an entrepreneur, um, but he's trying to encourage other Christian entrepreneurs to pursue their work not just as a way to make money, to, uh, to take down you know, their competitors, but to expand the kingdom. We're thinking that's a guy who has a big view of Jesus. He's not out to live his life just to, just to win, just to earn more. But he wakes up in the morning as a businessman saying, how can my company provide for my employees? How can we actually be engaged in creating good products for the good of people in our world? It's a big Jesus. Do you, do you know him? Have you seen him? How big is your Jesus? The question that that raises for us is this. Where is this Jesus to be found? This cosmic Christ, where do we encounter him? 
Well, the, um, I'm going to warn you that the answer is going to feel very underwhelming. <laughs> Jesus is at church. <laughs> um, Sam kind of beat me to the punch on this. Thanks, Sam. Jesus hears the voice, it says, or John hears the voice of Jesus. It says it was loud like a trumpet, and he turns around to see what this voice was that he had heard. And in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So there's this image of the lampstands. What does that mean? Well, verse 20, Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, where do you find this beautiful, staggering Christ? John says he's at church. Um, Jesus goes to church. I know that this is not the most popular thing to say, even in, even in our time. I mean, there's this idea, even for Christians, like, I love Jesus. I'm not so sure I'm convinced about the church. The problem with that is that the whole message of the New Testament is that Jesus is building a people, a church. He's gathering the church together to carry on his mission in the world. And Jesus refers, and the Bible refers over and over again to the church as the bride of Christ. You can't be my friend if you don't like my wife. Because that would be foolish. She's definitely the better of the two. But beyond that, like, we're not going to get along very well if you don't like my bride, right? We cannot love Jesus and not embrace his bride, church. If you want to find Jesus, the book of Revelation tells us over and over again, Jesus loves his church. If you want to find Jesus, you can find him in the midst of his church. Um... Now, we might say that, but the, the thing that struck me as I was reading this uh, this week is that it doesn't just say that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstand. Like, there's, there's not one lampstand. Uh, Jesus is in the midst of the seven lampstands. And to reference, these seven lampstands refer to seven actual congregations throughout Asia Minor. Uh, and we're going to see in the next couple weeks in Revelation 2 and 3, um, Jesus begins to address seven particular churches. But the number seven, symbolically, is the number of perfection and wholeness. And so um, Jesus is not just um, talking about you know, these seven theoretical or these seven specific churches that he is in the midst of. But symbolically, uh, Revelation is saying that Jesus is in the midst of all of his churches. But the point I want you to get is, is this. Jesus is not just in the midst of his church. Jesus doesn't just love his church. He loves his churches. And uh, even if we get on board with the idea, okay, the church is the body of Christ. So if I love Jesus, I love his church. Um, we can often mean by that, like the worldwide, invisible, every person who is a believer um, and still have a very tough time with an actual church. <laughs> Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't just love the church in general. He loves specific churches. Um, and that's tough because if you've ever been involved in an actual church, like it can be a real bummer. <laughs> like the church is great, but an actual church, uh, being an act, part of an actual church requires something of you. Uh, being a part of an actual church will disappoint you. You'll sing songs that you don't love. 
you know, you'll want to like teach a class and somebody will ask you to help with setup. It's a bummer, man. <laughs> um, there's all kinds of reasons why it's easy to love the church but turn our nose up at actual churches. Jesus loves not just the church, but he loves his churches. He loves his churches. Or another way to say that is if you want to find Jesus, you can find him at church. It's on Sunday morning. It's on the Lord's Day. This passage says, so John says, he's, I was in the Spirit. I was in fellowship with the people of God and the Holy Spirit. I was in worship as I experienced the person of Jesus. And that's why what I've been saying this year, I think I've said this the last three weeks, is that my goal for us this year is to help us move beyond just being spiritual consumers, to become disciples, contributors, missionaries, and that doing that requires us, will require us to make a commitment to Jesus' church and to Jesus' mission. When we see the goodness of who Jesus is, we cannot be help, help but be drawn both to him and to his people. The church is the people of God on mission together in the world. It's through the church that Jesus is enacting his mission in the world. And when we see Jesus as he really is, his beauty compels us to join his people. His people. The idea that me and Jesus just have this thing going, just the two of us on our own, is totally foreign to the Bible. The word that the Bible uses for joining the church is membership. I was looking this week. Our church here, Resurrection OC, we have about 30 members. Uh, we average about 70 people a week worshiping with us here. I think we have somewhere, I don't know, around 100-ish, let's say, people who are regularly involved in the life of our church. Wouldn't it be incredible? If looking at the goodness of who God is over and over again this year, at the end of this year, we had 100 members. Wouldn't it be incredible if God moved us beyond ourselves to, to not simply say, well, this is the place that I show up in order to consume, but I've actually joined, I've become a member, I'm committed to being a part of this church for the sake of others. What if we stop hedging our bets in case something better comes along and we jump in with God where he promises to make himself found in his church. I know we're busy. <laughs> I get it. Like, I know, we're busy. Uh, I'm not, let me say it like this. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, like, we're all trying to carve the pie of our time into smaller and smaller pieces and in no way am I trying to get a bigger piece of the pie. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus already owns the whole pie. It's all his. If you want to find him, he's found in his church. It's all his. Last week we talked about Jesus as the foundation and the telos. I'm not trying to get more of your time. I'm trying to help you get a life in the truest possible sense. This week I was um, working on... Uh, um, a, my sermon at a, this brewery that I go to sometimes, and I've gotten to know some of the uh, other guys that are there regularly, and it's always this awkward moment as a pastor when I'm in this group of people and somebody says, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, if you're a fireman, like, people just want to talk about that. When you, somebody says, what do you do? And the answer is, I'm a pastor. It's like crickets. <laughs> okay, I don't even know where to go with that. So I tried something new, and I said something like, um, 
You know, I meet people all the time who've been successful in life but still feel like something is missing. And so I start new environments where people can connect with God and other people. This guy said, really? How do you do that? I said, I'm the pastor of a church. <laughs> I mean, it's worth trying just to see the look on people's faces when they try to figure out if you're serious or not. I mean, I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but very seriously. Like, I get that, oh man, God shows up at church. He doesn't go to the beach on Sunday. He's not playing soccer on Sunday. He's not taking his kids to dance. He's at church. And that sounds like, really? Come on. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus loves to be found in the midst of his church. He loves his church. He loves his churches. The question is, do we? Okay, finally... Briefly, how do, we, how do we respond to this? G- John sees this image of Jesus, the beauty, the, the, the overwhelm. I mean, there aren't good enough words to describe what John sees here. But he sees Jesus, and it says that he fell down. Um, verse 17 says, that When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I love this phrase, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The effect of seeing the glory of who God is, it has a twofold impact on us. John, I mean, if you've never been startled by who Jesus is, there's a pretty good chance that you've never actually seen the true Jesus. If he has not, in some sense, terrified you, then it is incredibly likely that the Jesus that you are interacting with is a Jesus of your own imagination, not the actual Jesus. He's startling, and yet the point is not to be afraid. Um, Jesus immediately puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid, do not fear. But listen to the reason why he says, um, he said, I was dead and I'm alive and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Jesus has already died, and he has risen again from the dead. And so the reason that we do not need to be afraid is not because, hey, everything tends to work out okay. It's because the worst thing that can happen to you is death. And Jesus, like all fear is fear of death, ultimately. And I get this. I am driven by fear. Um... But Jesus has sucked the poison out of death. He holds the keys to death and hell. Look, Jesus put his hand on John to console him. He is with John. He is with you. He is with us. Our lives are driven by fear, and yet Jesus continually shows up, shows us his presence in order to comfort us. I don't know, six, eight weeks ago, I was terrified that like we were going to... I mean, we were running out of money as a church quick, and I, was, I couldn't sleep at night. It was awful. And God just keeps showing up. Um, it's, um, it's amazing. Um, I, I, like, now I'm afraid to tell you how, how good our financial situation is because I'm afraid that you'll stop giving. But <laughs> I got a call on Friday from a, uh, two businessmen that said, we're going we're gonna to send you another $40,000. Carl gave an update a couple weeks ago saying, you know, our financial projection is that we have money 
I mean, like I said, contingent on us continuing to give uh, through May well, with this other extra $40,000. I mean, God willing, like that, that extends our financial projection out to the end of 2019. I live in fear that like we're about to run out of money and I'm gonna be out of a job with four kids and a house that I can't pay for. And God just keeps showing up. He just keeps showing up. He has been so good to us. Our lives are driven by fear and yet Jesus continues to show up. So let me finish with this final story. A couple years ago, a, uh, an inner uh, a video kind of went viral on the internet. And the scene opens with this uh, kind of video of just a very kind of boring, drab-looking food court mall in uh, Niagara Falls in Ontario, Canada. And uh, this food court looks like it hasn't been updated since the 70s, and it's cold, and everybody's all bundled up, and it just looks really drab and pathetic. And about 30 seconds into the video, a woman on a cell phone stands up and begins singing the Hallelujah Chorus to Handel's Messiah. And she sings a couple of lines, and then a guy who is sitting at Arby's, I mean Arby's, like how boring can it be? And he stands up and joins her. And then the custodian walks in with a slippery one wet sign. And he begins singing the hallelujah chorus. And you can see the crowd beginning to look around and people are wondering what's going on. And by the end of the video, 80 members of the chorus of Niagara are standing and singing the hallelujah chorus. And you can see the wonder on people's faces. Um, Some people pull out their phones and film this uh, some people stand because traditionally we stand when the hallelujah chorus is sung. Um, some people just are choking back tears. And I thought this is such, I mean, the hallelujah chorus is incredible, but to see it against the drab background of a pathetic looking food court mall is just uh, such a beautiful picture of what it looks like when glory breaks into our world. It is stunning. It is utterly stunning. And I checked again this morning. This video has been viewed 52 million times on YouTube. While the interest in this stunt, I mean, could it be that we live in a world where despite uh, our comfort and technology and convenience that we are starving for beauty? The message of the Bible that I want to show you over and over again this year is that God has broken in. We have a God who breaks into our lives to set us free from fear. We have a God who breaks into our lives to make himself known in our presence. What if we stopped arguing about how right we are and just began to sing along? What if beauty were to break in even into our lives? C.S. Lewis said this, We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. What we want is something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. We have a God who's broken into our world. He is stunningly beautiful. He is glorious. And I want you to see him this year. Would you pray with me? God, would we 
would we experience just a glimpse of what John experienced? Would we know you as the one who breaks into our existence? Though we go through our days like nothing really important is going to happen, God, we live in the presence of the one who holds everything in the palm of his hands. Would you help us to see Jesus? Would you make him real to us? Would you give us a hunger for your word? God, would you break into our lives and help us to sing? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.